Brothers and sisters, it's a privilege again to bring God's word to you this morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to one of several places we'll consider this morning. First Corinthians chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six. And I would like to read from verse nine to verse eleven. First Corinthians six. Once again, this is the word of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Let's pray together. By this same Spirit who has washed and sanctified and justified us as your people now further this work in us, we pray, or our enjoyment of it by the preaching of the word. Bless everyone who comes into the reach of these words. We pray that the gospel will be sweet to all, sweeter to many and sweet for the first time, even to some Today, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a decidedly unpleasant experience to be in a room where you are being talked about as if you weren't there. Robert Gates was appointed Secretary of Defense under George W. Bush. He replaced the outgoing Donald Rumsfeld. His job in 2006 was to salvage two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. When President Obama took office two years later, Robert Gates was retained in his post, unlike other officials. And so he served under two presidential administrations, two very different presidential administrations. He's recently published Memoirs of his time in the Defense Department position. He speaks of his early tenure under the new Obama administration this way. For the first several months, it took a lot of discipline to sit quietly at the table as everyone from President Obama on down took shots at President Bush and his team. Sitting there, I would often think to myself, am I invisible During these excoriations, there was never any acknowledgement that I had been an integral part of that earlier team. Discussions in the Situation Room allowed no room for discriminating analysis. Everything was awful, and Obama and his team had arrived just in time to save the day. Now, whatever you think of the respective policies of Bush and Obama administrations, you could imagine the hardship of Robert Gates sitting in such meetings as he did, listening to others around him speak of them and realizing all along that he was one of them they were speaking of. In this series that we are coming to a close in this morning about homosexuality in America, And in the church of America, I am very keenly aware that some hearing these messages could feel like Mr. Gates. Preacher, when you talk about the sin of homosexuality, you're talking about me, about my lifestyle. When you talk about the evil of same sex marriage, you're talking about my family or my ambitions for family. When you talk about the brokenness of same-sex attraction, you're talking about who I am, preacher. You're talking about me, you know. Of course, the church 
has been guilty of talking about people as if they weren't in the room. We can talk about those either pursuing or tempted to pursue same-sex romantic relationships as if they are they. They're not among us. But in fact, they are among us. Closer than we might think. That was an emphasis of last week's sermon. For what it's worth, in this series, I actually have been aware of this. That those with homosexual temptations and patterns of sin, they've not, at least to me, been invisible. But in this final sermon, in this series... I'm going to address myself entirely to gays and lesbians listening in. Or for those struggling with same-sex attraction who are in the very room that we are seated in. And I'll be preaching, and so I'll be the one speaking from the Word of God this morning. But this is my ambition. As I speak to gays and lesbians about the gospel, it's my ambition that I will accurately represent what all of this church believes and desires to do and to say to you if this is a sin that is part of your life or to which you're tempted. I hope that this congregation will reiterate this sermon in countless ways in the days and months and years ahead as it ministers to you and with you, if you're gay or lesbian or a Christian struggling with such sins. Now, I'm assuming something rather large. I recognize that from the outset. If you are such a person near to us and in hearing of my words, I'm assuming that you're still listening in this series. That you've not tuned me out yet, given the difficult things that I've said. You can well imagine that it's been a Inclination. But if I haven't yet lost you, it's because I'll assume for our purposes this morning that you do care at some level about what the Bible says about you, about what your life and that you care what the gospel means for you. For someone in your position, if you're gay or lesbian and you're still listening, you might have some questions I've tried to anticipate a, a few of them. There are three we'll take up this morning. The first is this. If I am gay or lesbian, where does this leave me in relation to God? That first question is the most important of any question that you could raise, and I'll spend the most of my time on that. And I have for you both bad news and good news. I hope you still have your Bibles there at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you turn back your eye to that, let me just remind you, the beginning parts of this series, I sought to underscore what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. Now, this is important in our day. You who struggle with this particular uh, activity or desire or orientation know that public opinion is shifting. It's shifting away from the position taken from this pulpit on the basis of the Word of God. Public opinion is that it is an entirely amoral question how one expresses their sexuality. But the Bible has been exceedingly clear. We've seen that already. Homosexual acts are sinful. Homosexual desires are sinful. Homosexual orientation reflects the brokenness of sin that goes right down to our very nature. Here's the implication of that that we'll see in 1 Corinthians 6. A willful pursuit of this sin as with any sin is incompatible with a saving relationship with God. More plainly still, you can't have a homosexual lifestyle and a relationship with God. Look at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That expression, inherit the kingdom of God, is a biblical way of speaking of the final 
expression of salvation. We would sometimes speak of going to heaven, which is also a good way to speak of salvation in its uh, consummating sense. But this one's even more uh, biblical in its sense, because the, the Bible's view is that God does a work in bringing us into relationship with us, with him now, so that in the day that's coming, when he sweeps the earth of the wicked and he settles into a new earth, the righteous, where he will dwell with them forever, that in that day coming, there are certain people who will not have relationship with him. He calls them in this passage, verse nine, the unrighteous. And he gives specific illustrations of that. And you should know that when he speaks of the unrighteous, he's speaking of those who are committed to a certain lifestyle of sin. They're intent on pursuing that lifestyle. And he gives multiple examples, sexually immoral thieves, drunkards. And also men who practice homosexuality. I referenced this passage at the beginning of our series. It's one of the more explicit references to the sin of homosexuality. Your footnote makes that clear in some of your Bibles. It's a reference to men, but Paul is also elsewhere. Very clear that this applies to women. Romans chapter one. Here's the implication of thus much of first Corinthians six. Homosexual lifestyle. I, I have to tell you this. The homosexual lifestyle is a barrier. It is an obstacle to salvation, to a right relationship with God. You, if this is your particular way of sinning and rebelling against God, you have a choice. You can either pursue that lifestyle or you can have a relationship with God unto salvation. It is that simple. In order to have that relationship with God, you have to acknowledge this to be sin and you have to express your sorrow for sin to that same God who calls it such. And you have to desire to forsake that sin and you have to seek his grace in doing so and the forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ. But you can't have both. If you're gay, if you're lesbian, if you're tempted to that lifestyle while professing yourself to be a Christian, you need to know you cannot have both. They were reciting to you from some testimonies of men and women who've made a decision to forsake homosexuality for Christianity this morning. And I do so because I hope they will speak to you if this is where you find yourself. Christopher Juan is such a man. He's an instructor nowadays at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. He's also a conference speaker now throughout the world. And what has made his testimony and his teaching so compelling is that God delivered this man as a young man from a life of homosexuality. Now, his sins manifested themselves in the more stereotypical forms of gay promiscuity. And that also led to a lifestyle of drug use and then eventually drug selling on a large scale. He was eventually caught for the latter. He was sent to prison. And while he was in prison... He stumbled upon a Gideon Bible that eventually brought him to conversion. Christopher Juan tells of realizing what the Bible said about his lifestyle. And he took that Bible and he, he went with these concerns to the prison chaplain. The prison chaplain surprised him. He said to him, actually, Christopher, the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And he gave to Christopher Juan a book that supposedly made that case. Listen to Christopher's testimony. I sat in the chapel's small courtyard to read with a chaplain's book in one hand and my Bible in the other. I had every reason in the world to accept the book's assertion that God was okay with my homosexuality and gay identity. If I could be a Christian and have a steady relationship with a man, that would be just about ideal. I'd go to church with him and maybe even start a family. It would be such a relief if this could all be reconciled. But as I started reading the book and reading the Bible passages it referred to, God's Holy Spirit convicted me that the assertions from that book were a distortion of God's truth. 
Reading his word, I couldn't deny his unmistakable condemnation of homosexual sex. I wasn't even able to get to the first chapter of that book. I gave it back to the chaplain. After that, I turned to the Bible alone and went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for biblical justification for homosexuality. I couldn't find any. I was at a turning point. A decision had to be made. Either abandon God to live as a homosexual by allowing my feelings and sexual passions to dictate who I was or abandon homosexuality by liberating myself from my feelings and live as a follower of Christ. My decision was obvious. I chose God. I'm saying to you this morning, if this is your struggle, it is behind that struggle, ultimately a decision between a certain way of living, a commitment to a certain kind of sin and and serving Christ and knowing God. Please understand this is true of your sin, but it's also true of every sin. Every sin represents another master in competition with Jesus Christ. This is a sin. That represents rebellion against God. You can't be in rebel against God and also be in a love relationship with him. So I said there's bad news. Perhaps what I've just said will strike you as bad news. But here's the good news. The good news to you about this question. Where do I stand in relation to God? This is the good news. Homosexuality as a sin is no obstacle to the grace of God or the love of God. It is in itself no obstacle. And now I ask you to look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When the apostle speaks of these sins, as he talks about those who are sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, why does he speak of those kinds of people? Why does he special, uh, spe- specify those particular sins? It becomes clear why. It's because he's known this congregation. They weren't just pulled out of the air. He knows these people. He knows where they've come from. And this becomes clear in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. There's a a couple of things in that statement that are utterly remarkable. One of them is the obvious fact that in this list of which homosexuality is one, these are sins, but they're not unforgivable sins. Sometimes when a man or a woman ensnared in this particular sin comes into the teaching of the under the influence of the teaching of Scripture and recognizes that two things, they plunge themselves into the sin and the Scripture labels it very clearly as a as an egregious sin. They they have this question, can I actually be forgiven? Are there certain kinds of sins that God simply says, no, that's just too much. That's just beyond my capacity to overlook and to forgive. Well, 1 Corinthians 6 not only names this a sin, it also puts it in the category of every other sin that is no necessary obstacle to God's love and his forgiveness. And he summarizes that in these three beautiful words. You were washed. That's a representation in the Bible of what God does through Christ's blood of removing us or rather moving from us from our sin. So that the dirty feel that you have when the Spirit shows you certain patterns of your sin, that dirty feeling has a solution. The solution is the cleansing that comes from Christ's blood being applied to you. He says you were washed. You were sanctified. You're not just cleansed, but you're changed. To be sanctified is to be renewed. It's to have something new given to you. It's such that you will not continue to sin as you did before. That's the meaning of this word sanctify. And the most foundational of all is actually saved for last in this list of three. This triplet. You were justified. You know what that means? Young, old, man, woman, boy, girl. Do you know what that means? It means that no matter what you've done, God can enter into a relationship with you as if you'd never done it. 
If you, in repentance and faith, call out to Him and ask Him that the thing which He did on the cross of Calvary, sending His Son to die for sinners, could also be applied to you, and He's capable and willing of doing it. He's capable of taking the righteousness of Christ and crediting it to your account and capable of taking all of your sin and placing it upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he did in Corinth in this congregation, rather colorful one, if you will, with all their past patterns of, of sinful lifestyle. That's what he had done. If you are gay or lesbian, you realize the bad news that your lifestyle is sinful and offense to God and stands between you and God. You're ready then for the good news. The good news that God has made a way for you to have relationship with him despite your sin. To separate you from your sin. And increasingly to make you a new person. Jackie Hill is a young Christian woman whom the Lord delivered from a homosexual lifestyle. She still struggles by her own testimony with same-sex attraction. She wrote a letter at some point, somewhat provocatively entitled, A Love Letter to a Lesbian. She's writing as someone who's been delivered from that lifestyle to someone still in that lifestyle. And she writes, God tells us that homosexuality is sinful, abominable, and unnatural. But if I were to be honest, sometimes homosexual attractions can seem natural to me. I don't think it's a stretch to say this may be your dilemma as well. You see what God has to say about homosexuality, but your heart doesn't utter the same sentiments. God's word says that it's sinful. Your heart says it feels right. God's word says it's abominable. Your heart says it's delightful. God's word says it's unnatural. Your heart says it's totally normal. Do you see, she writes, that there's a clear divide between what God's word says and how your heart feels. So which voice should you believe? Jackie continues. The struggle of homosexuality is a battle of faith. Is God my joy? Is he good enough? Or am I still looking to broken cisterns to quench a thirst only he can satisfy? That's the battle. It is for me. It is for you. Choice is yours, my friend. I pray you put your faith in Christ and free from the, flee from the lies of our society that can coincide with the voices of your heart. A heart that the scripture says is wicked and deceitful. Run to Jesus instead. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you've been with. I don't care how ugly your life has become. I don't care how shocking it would be to the good and proper people sitting around you and who perhaps have never been exposed to such things. You will not surprise God. When you go to him through his son, Jesus Christ, and Vomit up that sin and to say to him, I hate this now like you do. And I want to be rid of it in order that I can know you and walk with you. That's where these things leave you in relation to God. No other choice but to run to Jesus. Second question. Perhaps is in your mind if you're gay or lesbian or struggling with such sins. Where does this leave me in relation to the church? Turn your Bibles to First John chapter one. It's been my burden, particularly in the last couple of sermons, to exhort the church in general about their opportunity to embrace you. If you're struggling with sin in this area of homosexuality, my exhortation has been to the church in the last couple of sermons. Their responsibility and opportunity with you. Now I'm exhorting you to reach out 
to the church for help and for ministry. First John chapter one, verse five, we hear the language of walking in darkness and coming into the light. Verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. At that point to this passage, I'm especially mindful of those of you who struggle with this sin and yet maintain this confession that is spoken of here. We walk, we have fellowship with him. That's your confession. You're a Christian by every outward indication. You're a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And yet you're still walking in darkness. When John uses that expression, he's not only talking about sinful activity, but he's talking about sinful activity that you do on the QT. It's sinful activity that you know is inconsistent with what you profess fellowship with God. It's a kind of sin that that you're keeping hidden. That's walking in the darkness. Walking in the light, conversely, means being honest about sin, confessing it and forsaking it. And I want you to see the connection that he makes between walking in the light and having fellowship with one another, as well as forgiveness of sin. He puts them all together in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, coming clean, being honest, confessing your sin. You promote fellowship. You make it possible to have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I'm citing a book uh, that takes its theme from this passage. It's Peter Hubbard's book, uh, Walking in the Light. And he says in his foreword, he's dedicating it to you who struggle with this sin. To my brothers and sisters in our churches who have secretly struggled with same-sex attraction, may you be drawn out of the shadows and into the light of Jesus through the love of his people. We need each other. So we can fight sin and rejoice in God's powerful grace together. This is my burden. That if it's your struggle, that you not struggle alone. That you seek the blessing of Christ's church. If you have gathered from this series. That the church of Jesus Christ takes the sin of homosexuality seriously. You're quite right. It also takes the sin of fornication and adultery and pornography, just to name others, under the same heading of the seventh commandment. It takes those seriously or should. But a healthy and Bible-believing church also takes seriously its role in coming alongside those who want to be delivered from those sins. And by the grace of God, we as a church will take that role seriously in your life. If these are your temptations, you need a community of people. You know why? You need to be prayed for. Certain sins will not ordinarily let go of their grasp in your life unless there are people who are praying for you. You need to be prayed for. You need to be held accountable. You need to have the encouraging, watchful eye of someone who loves you and is seeking your benefit. You need to be encouraged. We can't encourage you if we don't know you're discouraged. And discouraged in this particular area. The world says, come out. The church also, in its own way of speaking, says, come out. Come out of the darkness. And into the light of of being known as those who are seeking God's grace. In this way, among others, you know, by now the name Rosaria Butterfield, she was recently at Wheaton College, an evangelical Christian school. She was interviewed by the school newspaper and she who has herself turned 
to Christ from a lesbian lifestyle was asked, what advice would you give to Wheaton students who are struggling with their identity? Listen to where her thoughts go in answering that question. If I was a professor and you came to me and said, I'm really struggling with this issue and I don't know who to believe. Is sexuality fixed? Is it fluid? Is it sin? Is it grace? I don't know what to do. Butterfield continues. I would take your hand and walk you across the street to college church. That's the church on campus there at Wheaton. And I would introduce you to Pastor Stephen Lee. And I would say, look, you cannot ask yourselves these hard questions in the spotlight. You need to get in the church. That's the safest place. Have the courage to go before the Lord himself and take the hand of a godly pastor who's not going to hurt you. Not going to shame you. It's not going to betray you. These are big questions you need, you deserve, God wants you to have. Good discipling. That's where her mind and heart goes. That's my appeal to you. I have only a sense of how much courage this might entail. I have only a glimpse of how much fear could, could overwhelm and keep you back. This, but it's what you desperately need. Can I tell you something? The Lord has used these sermons in recent weeks in my own heart. It's made me not only, I trust, readier, but more eager to see the gospel do its transforming work in the lives of you who struggle. In just this way. I can't claim to be as ready as I'll ever be. I'm willing. My fellow elders are willing. Your brothers and sisters in this congregation, God helping them, are, are ready and willing to help. That's where this leads you in relation to the church. My last question that I've anticipated, if you're still with me, gay, lesbian, or Christian struggling with this sin, what does the Christian life look like for me? Turn now, please, to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As you do, let me say, keenly aware of the counsel I'm giving to you if you're gay or lesbian, is considered by the, the society that we live in as both pointless and cruel. I'm painfully aware of that. It's pointless by many measures, many people's measure, because the conviction of our culture is that same-sex attraction is something that will not change. It's like the color of your skin or the color of your eyes. It will not change. And it's cruel because in light of that fact... Anyone who seeks to, to call another away from that particular lifestyle is, is only tempting them to despair, to deny who they are. And that's why what I'm doing in this pulpit is, in certain places in this country, are already illegal for counselors to do who are certified by the state. I take this very seriously, but my testimony to you this morning is the Bible is not offering pointless or cruel counsel to you. That's something I need to say to be both very honest with you about the Christian life and also to be very, I trust, encouraging to you about the Christian life. The thing I need to be very honest with you about is for you, in some ways especially, but not uniquely, for you, the Christian life will be hard. First Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain 
from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warns you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. If you struggle with same-sex attraction and perhaps are turning, have turned from homosexual practice, I will not disguise the truth from you at all. You have a very difficult road ahead in following Christ because following Christ entails your saying no to these particular desires that you have and that you fed. Verse 3, it's the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you, verse 4, control your body. Now, that's not something unique to you. This is true of every Christian. Every Christian has to say no to sexual desires in certain ways. Every Christian has to control their body. I'm simply saying that you'll not be an exception to this rule. The Christian life is a life of saying no to yourself in order to say yes to the will of God. A book has been published called Washed and Waiting. Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. A man named Wesley Hill he identifies himself as of homosexual orientation, yet he is a Christian and embraces the biblical teaching on homosexuality. And he recognizes it's not God's design for him. And he's written this book in order to share what it means for him to follow Christ and yet struggle in this way. At one point, he writes to an older single friend about his frustrated sexual desires. Here's what his friend said to him. Your email speaks in some detail about the desire for marriage and intimacy. To not experience this relationship means living with unfulfilled desire. But I assure you, even if you have to live your whole life without the blessing of marriage and family, you are not alone. Many, many people are and have been in the same boat I am 41 years old, a virgin, and one who's never experienced physical intimacy with another woman or man. Do I long for it? Sure. God's grace is fully sufficient to accomplish his purposes in me. And then Wesley Hill's friend says something that's really quite profound. Furthermore, I'd suggest that living with unfulfilled desire is not the exception of the human experience, but the rule. Hill realizes, I'm not all that unique. I'm a Christian living with unfulfilled desires. And I'm actually surrounded by such people. Some of them are heterosexuals and they're living with unfulfilled desires for marriage. They've not yet been able to marry. Some of them are married and they're living with unfulfilled desires with regard to their own marriage. Some of them are married and they don't have children and they're living with unfulfilled desires for children. And the list could go on outside of relationships. Some are desiring to be more successful and to have the kind of work that they want. Others of them are desiring to be healed, to be again whole again physically. And they're living with unfulfilled desire. If you are gay or lesbian, or if you are a Christian struggling with those temptations, you need to know this ache of soul is part of the Christian life. It results from saying no to yourself. It results from what Jesus calls carrying your cross and following him. Or as Paul puts it, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live 
may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, we're following a man who for our salvation said no to all of his desires, even the desire for sex. And he expects of his disciples the willingness to say no to many such desires, even the legitimate ones, in order to be faithful in following him. The Christian life is hard for you. It will be hard for you. I have something encouraging to say to you as well. It will also be a life of victory over sin and of change in who you are what you want. Romans 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I've already said something that I hope you hear again. If you struggle with this particular sin, I've already said, if you've been listening That it is not the case that every Christian who embarks wholeheartedly on the life of discipleship of Christ is uh, completely freed of, of all desires for this particular kind of sin, all temptation, all orientation towards this particular kind of sin. Sometimes the church has served you badly who struggle with this by acting as if the opposite of homosexuality is heterosexuality. That the way that you can be cured, so to speak, of homosexual desires is to have heterosexual desires. That's actually not the case. The opposite of heterosexuality is holiness. Like the opposite of every other sexual sin is holiness. But the Lord Jesus does promise in the gospel to begin a great work in you and to continue it. Ministry was started in the 1980s to reach out to those in the homosexual community called Harvest. Harvest USA has on its staff a man named David White. He's a pastor, a a ministry coordinator to men. He writes, making heterosexuality the goal for those struggling with same-sex attraction falls so far short of God's plan. There needs to be a greater redemption of our sexuality. Christ-centered sexuality is about submitting our sexual desires, longings, and affections to Him and learning by His power to live in holiness within His good and perfect design. Is this easy? No. Is it possible? Yes. If you struggle with this particular sin... It is possible for you to have increasing dominion over this particular sin, increasing measure of victory over the sin in the same way that it's possible for every other sinner seated here with you or numbering themselves among the disciples of Christ. It's possible through the power, the transforming power of the gospel that is at work in you through the Holy Spirit, applying to you the work of Christ on the cross. Here's how Pastor White expresses that. I want everybody to listen. Recognizing in this the dynamics for change, gospel change in every Christian. White writes, although transformation is at the heart of the gospel, it is a process that takes time and is often marked by failure. But failures are important because we learn thereby to repent, repeatedly returning to God for mercy, then rousing ourselves to start the fight of faith again is important spiritual training. Every single Christian says amen to that. A crucial aspect of change is facing the worst in ourselves And doggedly clinging to Christ as our only hope. And this is victory. Confronting our failures honestly without excuses, justification, blame shifting, etc. reflects significant change. The paradox of Christianity is that the deeper we understand our sin, the sweeter the gospel grows 
And then change happens. Victory ensues from acknowledging failure and increasingly resisting temptation because you grow in knowing him. You rest in who he is and what he's done for you. And increasingly trust what he says about you. That's what the Bible teaches about the way that change and victory come through his grace. I've been honest with you. If you want to be a Christian, like every other Christian, you'll find it is hard to walk the Christian life. I've also sought to encourage you. The power of the gospel, particularly under this heading, we often use the word sanctification, is such that by your faith, the union that you have with Christ, that faith, the power of Christ's resurrection is begun in your life, leading to greater and greater victory over all sin and this sin among them. These are the three questions that I've anticipated I've sought to address, if you're still with me, gay or lesbian or Christian struggling with same-sex attraction. I want to close with this one final word to you. Perhaps it's a question you've asked. It's surely one that I, I want to address in conclusion. I want to say to you that if you become a Christian, if you already are a Christian, Your identity, who you are, is not tied up in your sexuality. Oh, this is so important for you to see and understand, especially in light of what the culture is saying to you. We just we live in a sex crazed culture. Sexual appeal is so much an important part of who all of us are or are not, as we sometimes think. And so in a culture that is so sex-crazed, there is this powerful tendency to say who you are is very much related to your sexuality, your sexual orientation. But there is something the Bible teaches about who you are that's more fundamental, more basic than this by far. It's your relationship with God. And specifically, it's your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that if you're a Christian, you're in Jesus Christ. And something has happened to make you a new creature, a new creation. You are not, no matter what your past, no matter what your present struggle, you are not fundamentally, if you're a Christian in Christ Jesus, gay or lesbian. That's not who you are. I referenced a man named Sam Alberry. He himself explains why he doesn't use the word gay to describe himself, though he struggled with same-sex attraction for many years. He says, in Western culture today, the obvious term for someone with homosexual feelings is gay. But in my experience, this often refers to far more than someone's sexual orientation. It's come to describe and identify a lifestyle. When someone says they're gay or, for that matter, lesbian or bisexual, they normally mean that, as well as being attracted to some of the same gender, their sexual preference is one of the fundamental ways in which they see themselves. And it's for this reason I tend to avoid using the term. It sounds clunky to describe myself as someone who experiences same-sex attraction, but describing myself like this is a way for me to recognize that the kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity. They're part of what I feel, but are not who I am in a fundamental sense. I am far more than my sexuality. Remember how Paul speaks to the Corinthian church? That church with all the colorful past they had, he speaks of them as former sexually immoral, idolater, greedy, and homosexual. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Paul is not denying that they might still have temptations to these particular sins, but he's refusing to identify them with those sins. He's speaking of them in terms of their new identity in Jesus Christ. 
And if you are a Christian, or if you've become a Christian, that's who you are. Christianity offers you and every other sinner the opportunity to become someone new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's not just the gospel for gays and lesbians. It's the gospel for every one of us. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. We're here before you, O Lord, in all of our brokenness. Every one of us here sexually broken. And so in every other way, apart from your grace and your spirit, we are here to seek from you for the first time or the millionth time the gospel's grace to wash us from sins even just recently committed, to sanctify us, renew us, to obedience we long to show you in the next very few moments and the justification that we want to rest in by faith in Jesus Christ. We seek that from you. We ask that what we have studied together in this room and all who've heard it and listen in on it will find that gospel to be the answer to the misery that sin brings. Grant faith and repentance as gifts. And grant us in this evil day, in the wake of evil events, to as a church understand and delight in this gospel that we have received. Hear us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.